Here they come. Right now, they're gathering from hospitals all across America for Talk 10 Tuesday. They know there's important news and information just ahead. Don't miss out. Come in, sit down, and log on. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and co-host Dr. Erica Reamer. Here now is the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, Chuck Buck. Thank you, Clark Anthony. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 413th live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday and brought to you today by ICD University and Panacea Healthcare. And joining me this morning as my co-host is the very, very popular Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer, as you know from this broadcast, is the founder and the president of Erica Reamer, MD Incorporated. Good morning, Erica. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, everybody. Our lead story this morning is about living under the spell of the coronavirus. A lot of you are working from home these days as the country continues with the lockdown, at least in most states. Last July, close to 5 million people were telecommuting, and this year, nearly 75 million of us, including me, are working from home. Including me as well. Reporting our lead story this morning, well, in self-isolation, will be Rose Dunn. Rose is a consultant who travels extensively throughout the U.S., but not anymore. Rose is here to share some tips about working remotely, as she does now. She also has a new definition for PHI, which she's going to reveal to us later in this broadcast. And also on the broadcast this morning will be Lori Johnson, who has the Talk 10 Tuesday coding report. And later in the broadcast, our good friend Dr. Joe Nichols has a fourth report in his five-part series on healthcare data. It's now more important than ever amid the COVID-19 crisis. Indeed it is. And Susan Gatehouse returns with our Tuesday Focus. Today, she'll be reporting on how to manage the after-effects of coding and billing as COVID-19 cases start to move through an organization's billing cycle. Mm, very good. I'm looking forward to Susan's report. And you have a talkback segment this morning. What are you going to be talking about? I'm going to be explaining when to use Z03818 and Z28828 in relation to COVID-19. Very good. Looking forward to your talkback segment. We have much news to report this morning, and we begin with Tim Powell, who is at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. The Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is sponsored by ICD University Bookstore, reminding you that Dr. Eric Reamer's CDI learning modules for providers are now available. Use the ICD-10 Monitor Resources tab at the top of the web room for more information. Here now is Tim Powell. Thanks, Chuck. And for months, we have heard that hospitals do not have enough beds during the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, oddly, the excess in hospital beds in the changing U.S. market is creating an environment of layoffs and layoffs and closures. While certain hospitals saw a surge in patients who had contracted the virus, it was offset by the loss in beds required for elective surgery. The vast majority of U.S. hospitals have only seen the reduction side of the equation. Indeed, even when states open up hospitals for elective procedures, many patients will never go in for that elective procedure. Some elective procedures have pharmaceutical alternatives. The insertion of cardiac stents were once a driving force in hospital reimbursement. The use of blood thinners and other drugs were eventually found to be as effective as the use of the stents. Other elective procedures like hip and knee replacements may never actually occur. Patients, while in pain, can continue to function using supported devices like canes and walkers. The million-dollar question here would be, even if you allow hospitals to perform knee and hip replacements without a vaccine for the COVID-19 virus, are patients going to reschedule that knee or hip replacement surgery? It also begs the question, will the hospital still be in business a year from now when the potential patients feel comfortable in coming in for this type of procedure? 
I think, unfortunately, that we will also see patients put off needed care out of fear. If is the patient with chest pains having a heart attack or indigestion, compounding the problem is the fact that millions of Americans have lost their jobs and health insurance at the same time. And so with that, back to you, Chuck, and we'll be looking at this issue in greater detail as we move forward. Thanks, Tim, very much. That was Tim Powell. Tim is a compliance expert and an ICD-10 Monitor national correspondent. It's Tuesday. It's April 28th, and you're listening to the 413th live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. Stand by. Correct coding of COVID-19 is one of the more serious challenges facing hospitals and physician practices in the United States. The rapid changes in federal regulations and technology to address the pandemic are nearly impossible to keep up with. And this unprecedented pandemic brings an equally unprecedented response in the ICD-10-CM code set. To ensure proper coding of COVID-19, Dr. Eric Reamer will explain the new coding guidelines, proper sequencing, and pathophysiology during an exclusive ICD-10 Monitor webcast tomorrow, April 29th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Register now for this important and timely webcast and save $30 when you enter the coupon code TUESDAY at checkout. This webcast is part of a portfolio of educational webcasts produced by ICD-10 Monitor. And during this national public health emergency, accessible online education is more important than ever before. Visit the ICD-10 Monitor web store to learn how you can subscribe to the ICD-10 Monitor Educational Webcast Series. And by the way, you ought to register right now for Dr. Reamer's webcast. It's going to be a great one. It's going to be a sellout as well. Here with the Talk 10 Tuesday Coding Report is Lori Johnson. Good morning, Lori. Good morning, Chuck. Good morning, Erica. And hello to our listeners. As the global map has surpassed 3 million confirmed cases and the U.S. approaches 1 million confirmed cases, there's been much speculation about using hydroxychloroquine as a treatment for COVID-19. This drug is an immunosuppressant and antiparasitic drug that is used to treat malaria. Another name for the drug is Plaquenil. Side effects include skin rashes, nausea, indigestion, diarrhea, headaches, mild hair loss, tinnitus, and visual problems. The adverse effect and poisoning codes for this drug include for accidental T37.8X1 plus the seventh character, self-harm T37.8X2, assault T37.8X3, Poisoning undetermined, T378X4, adverse effect, T378X5, and underdosing, T378X6. For accurate coding of poisonings and adverse effects, the coding guidance should be followed. The guidelines for poisonings include always confirm the code from the table of drugs and chemicals with the tabular, Use as many codes as necessary so you can completely identify all the drugs that are involved. Only use the code once. So if you have a code that um, is used by two different drugs, you only need to report it once. Adverse effect means that the patient was taking the medication as directed, but something untoward occurred. Assign the codes for the manifestations followed by the poisoning code. Poisoning occurs when drug is not used as prescribed and the intent is included in the code. 
interaction between drugs and alcohol is classified as a poisoning. Manifestation of poisonings are assigned as additional codes. The poisoning codes include accidental, which is unintentional, um, taking too much medication. Um, An example would be uh, a patient, you see this frequently in elderly patients where they take a second dose when they shouldn't. Um, Self-harm is an intentional misuse of the medication. So if somebody is trying to commit suicide via medication, this would be an example. Assault is when another person intentionally causes the patient to use the medication improperly. So we see this when people are trying to uh, kill somebody via medication. Um, That would be an assault. Undetermined is when there's not documentation to know if it is a poisoning or um, or accidental, say if it's an intentional or accidental poisoning. Um, so that requires documentation of the provider that the intent is unknown. Underdosing is another type of poisoning in that it t- it's when the patient takes less of a medication than prescribed. The underdosing codes cannot be used as a first listed or as a principal diagnosis. So, and you would also want to include codes for noncompliance. The accurate coding of poisonings and adverse effects include correct assignment of the seventh characters. There are three seventh characters that are associated with poisonings and adverse effects. The seventh character of A is when the patient is undergoing active treatment um, for the condition, and that means the condition is in the acute phase. The seventh character of D indicates that the visit is a subsequent encounter. The active phase has been completed, and the patient is undergoing routine care during the healing phase. For aftercare for poisonings, and adverse effects assign the poisoning code with the seventh character of D. The seventh character of S is used to indicate the residual condition remains after treatment has been completed. The residual condition should be listed first, followed by the poisoning code with the seventh character of S. As we think about various methods to treat COVID-19, it's important to follow the guidance of our medical professionals in using medications or other substances. Take your medication as prescribed. So back to you, Erica. That was a great review. Thanks, Lori. That was Lori Johnson. Lori is a senior healthcare consultant for Revenue Cycle Solutions, LLC. Here's a question. How will you and your team manage the after effects of coding and billing as COVID-19 cases move through your organization's billing cycle? Here now to explain is Susan Gatehouse with today's Tuesday Focus. And good morning, Susan. What do we need to know? Good morning, Chuck, and good morning to all. The creation of the new COVID codes, date ranges to which they apply, waiver considerations, modifiers, condition codes, not to mention the various settings these codes may be applied is a full-time task in ensuring organizations are up to date. Telemedicine, telehealth, that is a topic in and of itself and has its own nuances. So as, as you can see, there's many, many areas in which organizations could get the coding right and can get the coding wrong. Accurate documentation and coding have always been important to witness the level of importance to come to life during this pandemic. 
um, has been a reminder of the importance of appropriate checks and balances needed to ensure documentation, coding, billing, and payment are accurate. Many organizations have been quick moving to implement updates to coding and billing guidelines as information is released. The up-to-date direction some organizations have administered will be of great value and claims start to move through the billing process. And we're at that stage now where claims have started to move through the billing process and we are, we are feeling the, um, the complexities of the coding and, and the complexities of the, the documentation, just to name a few. So this has become real life now. It's not, not anticipation at this point, but it's, it's actually starting to happen. Because of the abundance of information from CMS and the cadence in which it's released, it's extremely challenging to remain up to date on coding and billing guidelines associated with this virus. Some organizations have found it helpful to have task groups to include clinical documentation improvement, coding, billing, claims adjudication, someone who is familiar, and I shouldn't even say familiar, someone who is an expert in lab testing and also charging. Charge master maintenance um, is also imperative because some of these codes are new and they're currently not in the charge master. Um, information technology, these are just to name a few to, that you would want to include in your task group. Just like there's a, a task group for COVID from a, from a scientific perspective, there's also the business side where we're seeing more and more task groups start to accumulate. So a COVID coder, for example, we need to, as organizations, to have a single source of truth. Um, so a COVID coder or someone who is tasked with staying up to date on all of the coding and documentation guidelines, nuances, frequently asked questions that AHIMA or HA publishes, this individual will be responsible for maintaining up-to-date information as it relates to the coding, and not only maintaining it um, amongst coders within the department, but throughout the organization as a whole. A COVID biller should understand the rules surrounding claim requirements for billing COVID, many of which have been discussed during Talk 10's Tuesday webinar. This person is a resource for educating departments that are most affected by COVID, Technology can trigger a custom edit to recognize COVID cases. A COVID biller or coder can easily work these edits on a pre-bill edit basis to ensure claims accuracy before submitting the bill. So this has become a very popular um, procedure in and of itself. Billing of laboratory services is a complex undertaking considering the volume of code selection for COVID testing, the setting to which it's provided, and all other related idiosyncrasies. It is imperative to have a resource for this area that can participate in the organization's ed educational efforts. Claims adjudication is obviously paramount. With the onset of COVID and the Family First Act, there are numerous services that payers have implemented cost-sharing measures. Technology can assist with this effort. For example, one of several considerations related to costs that organizations do not want to miss is the additional 20% reimbursement for certain MSDRGs related to the COVID virus. And let me just state, there are MSDRGs that will receive a, a potential of a 20% increase. Uh, I do anticipate we'll see more MSDRGs added to the list already, hopefully, so keep an eye out for that. 
some organizations have already programmed their systems to expect this increase and created notifications to alert patient financial services when a claim is not paid at an expected increased rate. It's our responsibility as part of the healthcare industry to put every effort in capturing data timely and accurately. We've witnessed firsthand the masterful use of data identifying and working towards solving life's change, life-changing events, and most, most importantly, protecting the health of the American people. Back to you, Erica. Thank you, Susan. That was Susan Gatehouse. Susan is the founder and CEO of Axia Solutions. And you can read Susan's reporting on this very important subject in today's edition of the ICD-10 Monitor News. Complete and accurate healthcare data has never been more crucial than it is today during the coronavirus pandemic. Joining us now is Dr. Joe Nichols. Dr. Nichols is writing a five-part series on healthcare data for ICD-10 Monitor. And today, Dr. Nichols has report number four in his series. And good morning, Dr. Joe. Good morning, Chuck. Thank you. The whole issue around healthcare data and uh, healthcare information has been considered one of those things that uh, a given. We we see information and we believe it's true, or we think we know what it says. Uh, but the current environment has really drawn attention to the fact that we're getting a lot of information, a lot of data that's very confusing and sometimes conflicting, and often is absent of the information that we need. And so it's really shining a light on some of the challenges we have with healthcare data and with the analysis of that data. So this uh, part of the series really speaks to analysis. So assuming that we've collected the information, which is the biggest challenge that we probably face today is be able to get data to to compare and and do analysis on, the next uh, uh, challenge really is what do we do with that data? How do we look at that data to try and derive some information uh, from that data? And and that's another huge challenge. And there's really uh, five different requirements needed to make sure that we do analysis properly. We have to first consistently define uh, methods of aggregation. What is that category? What does it mean? What does it include? Statistical validity. Are we really looking at numbers that mean anything? You need to test any reports that go out in many different ways. Uh, we need transparency as to how that information was uh, was uh, acquired. And finally, and one of the biggest challenges we face, and there's an, another paper to be written uh, in the fifth series, is how do we avoid bias-driven analysis, uh, particularly in an environment that's politically charged, in an environment where we want to see certain results or we want to de- demonstrate certain results? So if we look, for example, like an aggregation, we all assume when we see a category like diabetes that we know what it means. But the reality is, if you look at a variety of different ways that diabetes is aggregated, sometimes it includes secondary diabetes, sometimes it doesn't, sometimes it includes gestational diabetes, sometimes it doesn't. Uh, it does not include diabetes insipidus or does it? We we really don't know what that means. And, and clearly, if the categories are defined differently, the results will be different, not because of anything related to the analysis of the results, but simply because we've defined them quite differently, but we think that they mean the same thing. Statistics, we've always had a challenge with statistics. Mark Twain said there's lies, damn lies, and statistics. Uh, not because statistics are bad or wrong, but they're certainly used in improper ways. We frequently, and we'll see this today, look at trends. And what does that trend mean? If we look at trends in the number of cases, for example, it's always going up uh, because there are always new cases. 
what we really need to look at is what's the trend in terms of uh, will that it, are we seeing new cases and and how how is that trend looking at and when we talk about a trend we can't just look at three numbers and say we have a trend for most statistical analysis we actually need seven numbers to be able to declare that we have a trend. So there's a lot to be thought about in terms of how we analyze this data, even if we have the best data in the world, even if it's managed appropriately and defined appropriately, we can still come up with very different conclusions. For a lot of statisticians, you know, there's the joke is, is what number do you want it to be? Uh, we have to be very careful in terms of how we analyze this data and how we convey that so that information isn't misinterpreted. Back to you, Erica. Thank you, Joe. That was Dr. Joe Nichols. Dr. Nichols is the principal of Health Data Consultants. And you can read Dr. Joe's fourth report on healthcare data in today's edition of the ICD-10 Monitor. This is Talk 10 Tuesday. Stand by. With nationally recognized consultants and state-of-the-art technology, Panacea Healthcare provides auditing services for inpatient, outpatient, physician, pharmacy, revenue integrity, and documentation. Panacea also provides auditing services for specialties, including interventional radiology, E&M coding, surgery, and more, to help you meet your auditing and compliance goals. From finding lost revenue to capturing all charges and ensuring compliance and data integrity, you'll be confident that Panacea is focusing on the important risks and opportunities. Here's more good news for your organization. Panacea can electronically audit 100% of your claims or encounters within minutes, revealing those claims with the highest probability for a coding, compliance, data integrity, revenue risk, or opportunity. And for a nominal fee, Panacea will process your claims and provide a diagnostic review. That's the Panacea Difference. To learn more, call 866-926-5933. That number again, 866-926-5933. Reporting our lead story this morning, while in self-isolation, is the past president of Ahima and a good friend of this broadcast, Rose Dunn. Rose is a consultant who travels extensively throughout the U.S., but not anymore. And so we asked Rose to share tips about working remotely as she does now. Rose, good morning. Give us a new definition of PHI as well. Thanks, Chuck. Well, staying at home has been quite a change for me, and many of you know I usually travel about 48 weeks a year for my job. Now I get to sleep with my husband every night. That's good for me. For him, eh, to be determined. So... What does this work-from-home status mean for us? First, we gained no less than an hour per day from no longer having to commute, not to mention the wear and tear on our cars, gasoline, and the environment. As for me, it's more like 18 hours gained each week, and that's during good weather. And I don't miss those flying Petri dishes. While working from home, We really don't need to get out of our pajamas nor comb our hair. Just find a sticky note and put it over the camera lens on your computer. After all, we should be protecting the PHI that might be visible. And by this, I mean personal hair injustice. And why wash dishes? When eating, we don't need to eat off a plate. The carton will do, especially if it's Ben and Jerry's. 
finally, we've learned how to multitask during conference calls, which means if we cover up the camera and mute our phone, no one knows we're watching days of our lives and eating a bag of crunchy Cheetos. However, you know, getting that orange residue out of your sheets can be challenging. Allegedly, when we work from home, we have less distractions. I know that's not so for those of you with children at home. So for homeschooling the kids, there are a lot of life lessons they can be taught that will also serve as motivators to do their routine schoolwork, such as teaching them to mow the lawn, paint the house, clean the basement, and of course, wash the windows. So what have I been doing? I had a lengthy list of to-dos. I finished updating my textbook to be published <clears throat> by Health Administration Press and my program on HCCs for the Libman Company. Both should be coming out soon. Woohoo! I also found myself looking at the new CMS E&M rules that will be launched in January. I'm concerned that our providers who don't realize that their encounters are triggering HCCs for Medicare Advantage plans will use the relaxed E&M rules and not document sufficient information to meet required by HCCs. For those of you that oversee EHRs with Profi E&M calculators, have you checked with your vendors to see what their plans are to test and install the new E&M rules? Finally, we all do need some distractions to clear our heads, and here are some ideas. First, get out, get up, walk around. Sitting on those glutes makes them more widespread than the pandemic itself. Don't work in the kitchen. It's too close to the refrigerator. Try to work someplace where you can see outside. It takes your mind off the fact that you're running out of toilet paper. Learn from this event. During this crisis, we may be able to see what's working, what's not. Identify functions we've been doing that have no or limited value. And further streamline our operations. It's also a time to build backup plans. One of my clients was crippled by their DNFC when their offshore coding firm was shut down by COVID. We need backup plans. Drink lots of water. If you slip some scotch in it, well, good for you. But remember, that's going to mess with your productivity. And finally, pick a chore. The next project on my list is to clean out the closets. I figured if I'm in the closet, I won't be in the refrigerator. Erica, I hope you're keeping safe and healthy, and I wish the same for all of the Talk 10 listeners. Rose, you were a hoot today. That was Rose Dunn. Rose is past president of AHIMA, and she is chief operating officer for First Class Solutions. Chuck? <laughs> That's right. Very good. Thanks, Rose, and thank you, Erica, very much. And for a delightful, refreshing relief from all the COVID news, be sure to read Rose Dunn's story in today's edition of the ICD-10 Monitor. Thanks, Rose. Back to the refrigerator. And now's the time for a very popular segment here at Talk 10 Tuesdays, and it's called Talk Back, and it features our own Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer, it's all yours. Thanks. Never before have we seen a disease entity go from discovery to WHO upheaval of the ICD-10 freeze to create new codes to importation of a code into ICD-10-CM in a matter of weeks. As a result, the codes and the guidelines are not quite up to the challenge. The cooperating parties are trying to issue guidance to fill in the gaps, but they can only work with the codes they have been dealt. 
I have written before about the codes which I feel we need, the need for um, the code for uncertain COVID-19, which is U07.2 and ICD-10, and dedicated codes for personal history of COVID and immunological findings of prior COVID. But my article and talk back today will focus on the use of two codes which do exist, Z03818 and Z20.828. I'm going to use an analogous condition first to illustrate. In 2001, there were some anthrax exposures. The people who contracted and died from inhalation anthrax were coated with A22.1 pulmonary anthrax. The people who were exposed to anthrax and given prophylactic antibiotics to ward off the disease were coated with Z20.810, contact with and suspected exposure to anthrax. Folks who thought they might have been exposed and were worked up before finding out that the white powder was only confectioner's sugar were coated with Z03.810 and counter for observation for suspected exposure to anthrax ruled out. This is how coding for COVID-19 should work whether you are symptomatic or not. If you test positive or are diagnosed with COVID-19, you get U07.1 as your code. Ideally, if you have known or suspected exposure because you were either aware of a potential exposure or live in a surge hotspot, you get a code of Z20.828 contact with and suspected exposure to viral communicable diseases. However, if a workup is felt to be indicated but no exposure is determined or suspected after the test returns negative, Z03.818, encounter for observation for suspected exposure to other biological agents ruled out, would be the proper code. This would be the optimal coding. Those codes would be symptom agnostic. There are problems with this ideal coding schema. The guidelines specify both zero, zero, I'm sorry, Z03 and Z20 codes as being for asymptomatic patients. And Z03.818 is mandated as a principal or first listed diagnosis. In order to address these concerns, the American Hospital Association published guidance, but they have to work within constraints, so the advice is imperfect. Their FAQs, which were revised April 16th, made allowances for Z20.828 to be used with symptomatic patients. However, they could not override Z03.818 needing to be principal or first listed diagnosis. Think about the patient admitted for an appendectomy who is tested to determine if they are an asymptomatic COVID-19 carrier to determine where they should be placed. If the test is negative, Z03.818 should be their corresponding diagnosis, but that would be an inappropriate principal diagnosis. The guidance also implied that during this time of pandemic, everyone should be assumed to be exposed, so Z20.828 would usually be appropriate. This may be true in surge areas, but not universally across the United States. We also have to look ahead beyond the pandemic, but this is what we have to work with. If COVID-19 is ruled out, use Z20.828 for symptomatic patients, and it can be the sole first-listed diagnosis or principal or secondary. Admitted patients, Z20.828. If an outpatient is asymptomatic and tests negative, if there is known exposure, 
you can use Z03.818. And if there is known or suspected exposure, use Z20.828. Please join me for my webinar tomorrow to learn more about COVID-19 coding. We should thank CMS, the CDC, and AHA for their service. They are working, and AHIMA, sorry, and AHIMA. They are working tirelessly to keep up with this flood of information and trying to get it right. Stay safe and sane. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Erica, very much. We were receiving a lot of questions this morning, and we've asked our panelists, of course, to stay around to answer the questions. Erica, let's begin with you. Chuck, I'm going to address um, the comment that Ron Hirsch sent in, because I agree with him, and I wanted to make sure that we clarify. Um, what he said was the 20% DRG bonus is not about the DRG. It is simply the presence of U07.1, or the B code prior to um, April 1st, on the claim in any position. Every DRG is eligible for this. Um, And what I really want to convey to you is two things. Number one, if the doctor makes a clinical diagnosis without an uncertain qualifier, then you should be coding U07.1. Secondly, do not let any administrators try to get people to add U07.1 COVID-19 if the patient doesn't have it. It is inappropriate and it is fraudulent, even if there is a 20% DRG bonus attached to it. Uh, Let's see. We have a couple of other questions. Um, Holly asked uh, regarding, um, I have not seen any updates allowing coders to pull diagnosis from laboratory reports. I have made a practice of querying providers to amend as appropriate per the lab report findings. Since results don't come back for several days, what is your best advice for this practice? And she is specifically talking about an uh, emergency department scenario where lab results are not noted um, until the uh, uh, encounter is um, closed. Lori, did you want to make a comment on that? There has been guidance suggesting that facilities should hold those claims to know what the lab results are. So that way you would know if they're COVID, you can assign the appropriate code. If they're not, then you can you, you will know what the result is and apply a code appropriate for that. So that's what I want to really make sure that people were aware of is that when you're testing, you should hold them. The AHA guidance, I know that they were saying that for inpatients. Are they, they making that suggestion for outpatients as well? Because, in, you know, the, one of the um, unique uh, situations about the emergency department is that um, they have both inpatient and outpatients. So, you know, presumably um, for, the in, for the inpatients, it'll all get sorted out, you know, by the end of the admission. But... Um, for patients who are being discharged, are they making recommendations that these bills should be held as well? I believe so. It's Again, it's about so you can apply the appropriate code. Susan? Erica, this is Susan Gatehouse. Um, Laurie, I think that's great information. I do think it gets a, a bit confusing, especially in the ED in terms of um, I know that some hospitals have made it a practice, and I think this was on AHA's frequently asked questions or AHEMA's frequently asked questions, where um, if the lab result comes back and it's positive or negative, um, we can code that, say positive, and the physician never states positive in the 
in the um, documentation, but does the patient does come back positive, even if the physician doesn't state it. If the lab result is positive, the physician doesn't need to be queried. And I, I believe that's a that's an official source. I just can't remember which one, which we can get out to the to the group that's asking questions. I would actually like to um, reiterate that uh, because yesterday I was on an ACTUS um, 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 advisory board uh, call and we find that there are a lot of people who are feeling very uncomfortable about coding from a laboratory test because historically there are no other tests where we say to the coders, oh, just look at the results and, and pick up the code from there. This is different. If a patient, so if you have a negative result, 30% of the negative results may be false negatives. So you may be in a situation where you need to query to determine whether the the doctor believes that the false negative in the patient really has COVID-19. But if it comes back positive, those are considered reliable. And if if you get a positive result, you should be coding COVID-19. Do not feel uncomfortable about that. Uh, tell them Erica Reamer says it's okay. And the reality is AHA, AHA guidance told you it was okay. Chuck? Thanks, Erica, very much. If you have questions we're not answered during this live broadcast, we'll make every effort to answer those questions via email later this week. And I want to thank you all very much for being on our 413th live edition of Talk to Tuesday. And I want to thank Susan Gatehouse, Lori Johnson, Dr. Joe Nichols, Tim Powell, our chief humorist, Rose Dunn, and of course, our co-host, Dr. Erica Reamer. And remember, you can always listen to all the Talk Can Tuesday podcasts anytime, anywhere, and it's free. Until next Tuesday, I'm Chuck Buck, reporting for IC Monitor and Talk Can Tuesday. Thank you very much for being with us. Talk Can Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.